Amen. Well, good morning. If you are a little kid, you can uh, head to Kids Church. Run on out of here. How's everybody doing? Great. It's good to see you all. Um, it would be proper to start by saying Happy Mother's Day to all the mamas in the room, uh, including my own mama, who's down here, and the mama to my kids, who was up here and now down here. So, um, Happy Mother's Day. I, preparing for this week's message, it's, we didn't plan it to line up this way, but we're talking about the birth of Moses. Um, it kind of lined up where we're really pressing into a story of really powerful moms uh, today on Mother's Day. And so um, I should have told you that we planned it on purpose. You guys would have been super impressed with us. We did not do that on purpose. It just worked out that way. So we're thankful for you. Just There are uh, really strong, courageous women who are at the heart and the backbone of the Branch Church who serve and really cast the trajectory of, of hospitality and, and grace here. And um, So happy Mother's Day. The new moms, old moms, not old age moms, but moms who've been moms for a while. <laughs> but I do know that these days, Mother's Day, Father's Day, are also really challenging for some people, maybe who don't have great relationships with their moms, or maybe they long to be a mom and have yet to become one. And I think to, today, what I hope to get, when we get to the end of our message, our time together in God's Word, is that God has a plan. This is the whole purpose of Exodus. And so if your story is in one of those stories, would you rest in God's promises today that he has something planned for you? Whether it's a right relationship with your mom or not, or whether it's having babies or not, that God has a plan. And it's, uh, he's working all things out according to his goodness and his grace. And so um, let's trust in that together. So before we dive in, I'm going to just calm us down, calm me down by praying. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and flip over there. And, um, and I will pray uh, to launch us this morning. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for a place that we can gather together as the body of Christ and worship. I thank you for those who've served so well this morning in our kids' areas, on our welcome team, the folks who are here early setting up, uh, Riley and Megan leading us in worship. God, I just pray that uh, you would help stir our affections towards you, help us to see you clearly, help us to be faithful to your text. We thank you for this narrative, the story of the birth of Moses. And thank you for all the moms in the room. And uh, we just pray now that you'd go before us. We love you. We trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so before we jump into Exodus 2, I want to take us back just one verse to the end of Exodus 1. Um, we are in a verse-by-verse -verse study of the book of Exodus. So if you haven't been here, uh, we're going to be in Exodus for a good long while. So um, just go ahead and take your little ribbon and put it in Exodus. It's a safe place to leave it uh, here. Um, if you haven't gotten a binder, you can do that after the service. Take that with you. It's kind of, there's some companion guides to go along with our study. So our heart in doing this is to read all of God's Word, every part of it, faithfully and with courage. And so we're not going to skip stuff just because it's challenging, including what we were talking about last week, and Dylan did a great job. He doesn't probably want me to say this, but Dylan had a really hard week uh, his, as his grandfather was coming to the end of his life, and he was in Dalton, where he's from, and he drove back to be with us to lead us well on Sunday a week ago, and then went back and, and preached the funeral for his, his grandfather last week. And so thank you uh, for the way that you served us. Um, but there's so many who do that here. And so what I want to do now is I just want to take us back to verse 
22 from chapter 1, just to help us stay in the context of what's actually happening in the birth of Moses. So this is Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. It says, Then uh, Pharaoh commanded all his people, and this is what he said, this was the edict, the final edict, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And I don't know what you know of the Nile. I remember studying the Nile as a child in elementary school. You don't do a whole lot of Nile study unless I guess you're doing environmental stuff in college. But all I remember of the Nile is there's a lot of wildlife, right? You got birds, fish, but then you had like snakes and crocodiles, right? Things that will tear your face off. Uh, the Nile is a scary thing, but it's also huge, right? So it's this, it's this, this really long river that um, is what provides, what, what enriches the land, particularly for Egypt. It's, it's how they are able to produce crops. So the Nile would flood once a year. It doesn't do this anymore, but the Nile would flood once a year, and that ground would become super fertile for them to be able to plant their crops, and that's how they would live. But the Nile also runs backwards. Do you know this? This is really the only thing I remember the Nile. Uh, it, it flows from the south to the north. And I think this is, it's an important thing, not that it has, there's no theological importance here, but it's, it's fascinating to see the, the river that Pharaoh throws God's children into is an upside down river. Okay, we've been talking about God's upside down kingdom since we started Exodus. We're going to really do that when we talk about the birth of Moses and the people who preserve his life. But even the river that was meant to cause death and uh, really a, a travesty, is used by God for good, and it's a, it's a backwards river, right? It's not doing it right. It's flowing south to north instead of north to south. So let's dive into Exodus chapter 2, verse 1, with this edict in mind that every son that is born to the Hebrews shall be cast into the Nile. That was, that was a death sentence, okay? That wasn't, uh, let's throw them in and see if they can swim. It was, we're throwing them in there so they will die there, okay? It's a weighty text, there's a lot of gravity there. So this is Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Verse 4. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Verse 8, And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child, and she nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So what Pharaoh cast into the Nile, God pulls 
out of the Nile. Okay? This whole theme of Exodus is God drawing his people into himself and out of sin, out of bondage, out of slavery. There's, there's a lot of interesting things happening in here, uh, not the least of which is the significance of moms uh, and women, courageous women. And so we're going to really, we're, we're going to dive into that uh, here in a bit. But I want to point out a few things just as kind of a way to, uh, to breeze over and show you some significant parts of this text. And then I want to share with you something that I read a few weeks ago um, from an Old Testament scholar who put this uh, list of ironies together, which I found just so fascinating if we pay attention and we slow down and read. And that's really what we're trying to do here. So uh, the first thing I want us to see is this idea of a basket. And some of you may have heard this or you've seen it along the way or if you've been following in our Exodus guide, it was in there. But the word basket is the word tabat in Hebrew. And uh, it's also a very similar word in uh, the Egyptian language. But that word for basket is actually the same word that we get ark from. It's only used twice in the Old Testament. Uh, one is in Noah's ark, uh, a ship created. God sends a command, build a ship, and he uses it to preserve his people. Uh, same thing's happening here. Uh, Moses' mom fashions a basket, fashions a little mini ark, and, and God uses it to preserve his people. And so this idea of Tabat is so important. We get it twice in both times when it seems like all else is wasted, all else has failed, God delivers, God saves. And so don't forget that. Uh, when, when you're reading your Bible, when you can pick up on those little things, and again, you don't have to go to seminary, which we have some guys who graduated from seminary this week or next week, uh, and it's a huge deal. And uh, Andrew Wilson, who you've seen up here a good bit, um, graduated yesterday from Dallas Seminary. You don't have to do that in order to be able to see these types of things, okay? So the goal in me t- telling you this kind of stuff is not that you be able to read Hebrew. Full disclosure, I can't either without my computer, okay? So, but the, this, the importance of words, words matter, right? Uh, we, we teach our kids this all the time. Words matter. The words that you say to your sister matter. The words that you say to your brother matter, right? And sometimes we use our words for good. Sometimes we use them for harm. But God uses his words for good, and they're very important, and they carry glory, weight, okay? So tabat is that idea of ark or a basket, uh, a ship of deliverance, okay? So uh, rest in that, uh, this week. So the Nile, though, where, uh, Pharaoh, or where Pharaoh has now said all of the sons, right? And it wasn't just the firstborn sons. We, we know that Moses wasn't the oldest, right? We know for a fact that he's got a sister who has to be older because she protects him. She's looking out for him. But we also find out later that Moses has an older brother, okay? And we'll get there in, uh, in a number of weeks. But Moses isn't the oldest. So this wasn't an edict to firstborn sons. This was an edict to all sons who are born. So uh, Aaron, who's Moses' older brother, is safe from this edict because he had already been born, okay? It's all the sons who are being born, okay, once this edict comes down. And the, what, what is happening is earlier it was an edict to the midwives of Egypt to kill the sons of the Hebrew women. And the midwives say, well, you know, this was last week. Oh, we can't do it. They're, they're giving birth too fast. Really what it was, it was compassion in their delay, Okay, the Egyptian midwives were slow in getting to the birth of a Hebrew child because they knew that if they were there for the child's birth, they would have to take the son. And so we see this grace. We see these women protecting these babies. And then the edict grows because now Pharaoh sees that they are circumventing his edict. And it's 
all sons. You throw them in the river. And so I want to walk through these eight ironies that just that ravage this story. And uh, I'll do it slowly, and I'll walk us through each one of them. But this is from a guy named Terrence Fratham. And uh, he's an Old Testament scholar. He died a couple years ago. And he, he writes a lot of really great commentary on Exodus. Um, and so if you're interested in this kind of stuff, check him out. It was, it's one of my favorite that I've used uh, in preparing for this, uh, this series that we're in. But the first irony is that Pharaoh's chosen instrument of destruction, which is denial, is God's chosen instrument of deliverance, right? So this goes back to Joseph. Remember when we studied Joseph and what that line in Joseph's story of what you meant for evil. He's talking to his brothers. God meant for good. This is an echo of that, okay? What Pharaoh meant for evil, God meant for good. Did babies die? Yeah, some of them did, and it's horrific, right? And, and their blood still, to this day, is, is on the banks of the Nile River. But God delivered one. He delivered one because he can do it the way that he can do it, right? He just needs one. And so Moses is, uh, is the one, and God delivers Moses from Pharaoh's terrible edict. The second irony is that, as in chapter 1, verses 15 through 22, the daughters are allowed to live, okay? The daughters were never a threat to Pharaoh. But it is the daughters who proceed to thwart Pharaoh's plan. So we live, we live in a current, our contemporary culture that says that Christians, and, and I don't want to dive into this, this is not part of my uh, plan for today, but we live in a, in a world outside of Christian, out of the, outside of the church context who views the church as marginalizing women. Uh, and that's not true. Right? In this text, if any other text, and Jesus has a mom too, right? And, so, and that's a beautiful text about motherhood. But if this text above all else, because it's not just his biological mom. He has an adopted mom here. He has a sister here. He has other women, communal women, who part of the church, right? Who then, who fight and protect for his life. Women have a place in the church. So when culture, when people around us in the world say, well, the church is not accepting of women, that's a bold-faced lie. God often, often uses women because he knows that culture says that they can't in order for him to be able to do what he has intended to do. God is using the weak to accomplish his plan, and it comes up from inside of Pharaoh's house. That's where deliverance comes from. The third irony is that the mother saves Moses by following Pharaoh's orders. Pharaoh says, throw him in the river, and she does. Now, she does it with a twist, right? She kind of puts him in a little raft, a little ark, like we talked about, but she put him in the river, okay? So technically, she did what Pharaoh said to do, right? But she preserved his life long enough for God to save him. And now, we don't know how long Moses was in the river. We don't know if he ever got outside of the reeds into the actual flowing water. We don't know any of that. It's not really important. What we know is that she obeyed, she took her son, whom she loved, right? She was a fine child. That's what my parents said when I was born. And they put him in a basket and, and left him there. Like, she walked away. We see this, again, an echo from Abraham and Sarah. Long-awaited child. Isaac is born. And what does God say? 
take him up on the mountain, and there you will sacrifice him. Well, this isn't in the Bible, so conjecture a little bit, okay, so stepping away from the Bible. Sarah is left behind, looking at the foot of the mountain as her husband takes her long-awaited son to the top to kill him. She knows the plan. And we know the story. Right before Abraham takes the life of his son, God cries out and says, wait. And he preserves the life of Isaac. Same thing is happening with Moses. He is left to die. Okay? The fourth is that a member of Pharaoh's own family undermines his policies, saving the very person who would lead Israel out of Egypt and destroy the dynasty. That is awesome, right? So the, the very king, right? Pharaoh is a title. It's not a person. It's a, it's a title. The king who lays down this horrific edict, it's inside of his house that the edict is broken, and ultimately it's what leads to Egypt's fall. Egypt, we talked about this when we got into the introduction. Egypt was feared by the entire world. This was a superpower. And it's from inside the house, his very daughter, who lets a Hebrew child in, and it's that child who God raises up to lead God's people out and destroy the dynasty. That is awesome. The fifth is that Egyptian royalty heeds a Hebrew girl's advice. Okay? This would be like Mary London, if you know my daughter, Mary London, going to uh, the Queen of England and telling her what to do. And she, now, Mary London might be able to figure out how to make that happen, if you know her. Okay? But this would be like a little girl going to someone of power and telling them what to do, and they heed their advice. Okay, so Moses' sister goes to Pharaoh's daughter and tells her what to do. So the princess may have been gently conned, which I love that from Terence's commentary. She was gently conned, right? It's not sin if it's gentle, right? She was gently conned into accepting the child's own mother as a nurse. But her, clear, her pity is so clearly stated, right? Pharaoh's daughter had compassion. Her heart broke for this child, okay? Whether he was crying or not. But it's Moses' mom who becomes the nurse, doing exactly what God had intended for her to do. The sixth thing is that Moses' mom gets paid. She gets paid to do what she wants to do more than anything else in the world. I ha- we have three children, okay? Uh, women, are, they're created, right? Once they hold their child in their hands, something just whoop, a light switch just flips, and all of a sudden, they're doing exactly what they were intended. Is it hard? It's really hard, okay? There are nights, <clears throat> last night and the night before, sometimes we don't sleep, okay? And you don't know what's happening. It could be a bad dream. It could be I'm hungry. It could be I don't feel good, whatever, but it's really hard, but you never want to run away. That's what moms do. They step in when things get really hard. Raising babies is really, really hard hard. There's your encouragement, young families, okay? Raising babies is hard, but it is a good and faithful work. In fact, it's what the Israelites were commanded to do. Be fruitful, multiply, all right? So Moses' mom gets paid to do exactly what she wants to do more than anything else in the world. The seventh irony is that Moses is educated to be an Israelite leader, And then he strategically placed back into the very court of Pharaoh. So what do we know of Moses? We know that as he grew up, then he left his Hebrew home. Okay, so again, 
The text doesn't tell us how old he was, but he was old enough to learn something, right? He knew that he was different than the home that he was going into, right? He knew that he was different than the Egyptians, right? Part of that is the circumcision. Part of that is that he had been taught who he was. One of the things that we, we've talked about a lot is that the Hebrew people, the people of the Bible, are a storied people, right? They didn't, uh, in, in Exodus, they didn't walk around with their Bibles and say, well, what did, they, what did, what, what did it say about Noah? Was that the Tabat word again? They didn't have this. They were a storied people. So it was from one person's mouth to another person's ear, and it would go like that from generation to generation. So Moses was old enough to get just a tidbit, just enough for him to be a threat. All right? So the seventh irony is that Moses is educated to be an Israelite leader, and then he's placed back into the enemy's house. All right? The last one. The princess gives the boy a name. So Moses' mom doesn't name him. Pharaoh's daughter names him. So we don't know Moses by any other name than Moses. Okay? But the name Moses betrays more than what Pharaoh's daughter thinks. Because she's naming him after an Egyptian word frame, but in Hebrew, that same word means drawn out, right? So this etymology from Hebrew to Egyptian brings, ultimately, it tells the story of what Moses is going to do. So what, what she has done, what Pharaoh's daughter has done for Moses, eventually, Moses does for the people of Israel. That is the beauty of this story, did Moses deserve to be rescued from the river? No, he didn't. We'll find out next week that Moses was a sinner, just like you and I. But God intervened and preserved his life, saved him, and then used him for his good glory to bring the rest of the people with him. Okay? This is a great story. So why is the irony important? There are a few things, and I want, if you have your Bible, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to give you a second to do that, because I want to, I want to kind of, as we breeze into the New Testament, I want us to see something else from uh, Jeremiah the prophet. He says in chapter 9, he says, not let, let not the mighty man boast in his might. And that leads us to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29. I'm going to read this. It's, it'll be on the screen, too, if, um, if your Bible drill days are far behind you. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were, wa- were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God. You see that? Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are, what does it say? What was that little two-letter word? You are in, you are now in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's an upside down kingdom. God uses the weak to shame the strong. He, lets the, he uses the foolish to shame the wise, right? And we don't often like to think of ourselves like that, but Christians around the world, 
are being marginalized. And it's growing even in our own country. Christians are continually being marginalized. And it is in, from a place of weakness where God uses us to be his instrument, to be used by God. This ironic mode fosters a sense of hope. If God could do it for Moses, what could he do? I was not left in a basket. I wasn't. Now, I've heard stories, and we've known some children who were left at firehouses or left behind a dumpster. Some people are left to die, some babies. And even what's going on culturally in our world right now, our our world celebrates the death of the unborn. But how can God use us to elevate the weak, to fight for the weak, to protect the weak, so that the weak can be made strong. It's an upside-down kingdom. I think it's, it's no coincidence of what's going on currently in our world is lining up with what we're talking about as a church because it is important. And if we're not willing to do something, who will? Who will? This is, here I am, Lord, send me. Here we are, just a band of brothers and sisters trying to figure it out, but here we are, send us. Well, I'll go down to the river. I know a lot of you will go down to the river. That is what God is calling us to do. Pharaoh's daughter comes down. She sees the child. She hears him crying. And what does she do? She takes pity on him. She has compassion And then what does she do? She draws him out of the water and provides for his daily needs. That series of events reminds me of a New Testament series of events, the prodigal son. Do you know the story? This is from Luke 15. Um, I got, so when I was in college, I was forced to take an art history class. Uh, When you're 18, you don't care about art. I'm 36, I really covet art now. Not covet in like I want to collect art, but I want to, I want to study and I want to learn it. So I'm 18 years old, I'm taking an art history class at Young Harris, thanks mom and dad for paying for that. Uh, I did not want to be there. However, we studied Rembrandt's uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son. So I, I have a picture of it here for you to see. I know that it's gonna be impossible to see, so if you wanna look it up on your phone, I'm gonna talk about it for just a minute because there are, there's a lot in that painting that portrays what's happening in the story of Moses and certainly what's happening in Luke 15 with the prodigal son, okay? Now, just as a flyover, if you're not familiar with the story, there is a family, what we know of the family is there is a father, there's an older son, there's a younger son. The younger son comes to the dad and says, hey, I want my inheritance now basically saying, I wish you would die. The father says, okay, here's, ha- here's your half and gives the older brother his half. The younger brother takes it, spoils it on all kinds of crazy stuff, gambling guy, and then he's destitute, right? He winds up eating with the pigs. He comes crawling home, and who's there waiting on him? His dad, okay? His dad. He has nothing, right? And his dad sees him, right? Let's go back to, to Pharaoh's daughter, right? The, the dad and Pharaoh's daughter sees the child hears his cry, takes pity, draws him out, and brings him in. That's what's happening in the prodigal son. So here's what we're going to do. The older brother is on the right, okay? If you want to look this up on your phone too, if it's hard to see, I don't mind you doing that. Or if you use your phone as a Bible and like whatever, okay? Um, So the older brother is on the right. The the father is obviously the one with his hands on the the younger son who's now come crawling back. And if you see like his feet are dirty, okay? Okay. 
one of the things that I do remember from art history class was the hands, okay? Hands are a really hard thing to paint. Rembrandt happened to be really good at painting hands, but the hands are different, okay? So you'll have to look at this and trust me because I know you can't see the detail here, but th there is a masculine hand and a feminine hand on the back of, of the younger brother, okay? And uh, Rembrandt was trying to portray the strength of the father and the compassion of the mother at the same time. So if you'll, if you'll see it, this hand is masculine. It's veiny, it's dirty, it's big, it's kind of, it's kind of pudgy, stubby finger, you know. The one on the, on the left, I mean on the right, is kind of manicured, right? It's, it's daintier, it's thin, the fingers are long and slender. And in that one picture, Rembrandt is capturing what God is doing. He is powerful and strong enough to save you from whatever you think he can't save you from. And he's compassionate enough to welcome you and give you a seat at his table. But not just any seat. It's the seat of his son, the older brother, who doesn't, like in the story of Luke 15, where he says, I don't, he's dead to me. I don't want him to come back. Jesus, being the better older brother, being the better Moses' older sister, gives us his seat at the table. Strength, compassion. Strength, compassion. This is why men and women are supposed to live the way that they're supposed to live, right? This is why when culture says you don't, you don't give women a place, it is not true. They have a powerful place. There is a place. So I love this. I, I hope you will do this. And again, I nerded out one night this week, and I just like studying the painting. There's a lot in here, including the feet. I'll do this real quick. Um, the feet of the younger brother are exposed. The feet of the older brother are hidden in shadows to show his cowardice. Okay, so God is shining his light on the younger brother while the older brother is being hidden in the shadows. Okay, There's, there is something to that. And so look, it, Rembrandt, I don't know his whole story. I should have studied it more before I displayed his painting. But I love the painting, okay? Um, if somebody wants to give me a replica, I'll take it. Um, my birthday's in a couple weeks, okay? You should know this, all right? But what Rembrandt captures is what we're trying to tell each other in our church every time we're together, whether it's in family group or a Sunday morning or we're serving a school or we're doing a thing, is that God is powerful enough to bring you out of whatever you're in and he's compassionate enough to give you everything that he has. That is the story of Moses, the hands and feet. Romans 10 tells us precious are the feet of those who what? Bring the good news. They're dirty feet. They're gross but they're beautiful and they're used by God. The last thing I wanna do before I wrap us up this morning is talk about this idea of civil disobedience, okay? Um, not because, I think we would've done this anyways, not because of where we are as a current American culture, but because it's here in the text, okay? So this is one of the things that we promised to do when we were studying God's word verse by verse, is like, we're not gonna dodge the hard stuff, okay? There is civil disobedience that's happening in Egypt. Do not be fooled. This wasn't some sneak attack. This was blatant civil disobedience. Pharaoh's daughter knows what her dad has declared, and yet she goes and gets a Hebrew child, a hated. He, you, you, you only kill the children that you hate, and you're really evil, okay? So there's kind of a couple of things going on there. But you only kill the ones that you hate. And she goes and brings one in, not just to any home, but into his home, Pharaoh himself. That is civil disobedience. One of the things that Martin Luther King used to do is he would bring people into towns, not in order for an uprising, but for there to be some sort of uh, heat, right? Because he knew where that there was heat, 
and I'm, I'm trying to use, I don't know, if I'm using the word heat, okay, uh, where there was aggression from the outside. He knew that that would draw attention, and if he could draw attention to the plight of the people, guess what? People would grow in compassion. That's what's happening in Egypt. It's happening with the midwives. It's happening with Moses' mother. It's happening with Moses' sister, and it's happening with Pharaoh's daughter, okay? So there is a place, right? Respect authority. That's what the Bible says, but there's also a place for civil disobedience when where we as Christians, if we know what is right, we must be firm. And it's scary to be firm. But where there is power for evil, that power must be overthrown. That's what happened in Egypt. The story of Moses functions as a paradigm of Matthew's account of the story of Jesus. Moses is raised up by God to be a mediator, to be a deliverer, to be a savior of God's people. There would come another son who was also declared to be killed by another pharaoh, another king, King Herod, who was scared that his power was going to be lost to this son of God, and he declares that all the sons be killed. Then a son would be preserved. He would later be killed, but he was killed indeed. That is the story of the Christian. Sons are perceived as the threat, but it is the daughters that preserve and free God's people. God does what God does according to his time, and in amazing ways. This is a beautiful story. This is a story, I no doubt, that you've heard before, whether you grew up in church or not, the birth of Moses. This is a beautiful story that declares the gospel, and the gospel is this, that God saves sinners. God saves those who do not deserve to be saved because it brings him glory. That is the gospel. I want to close before we take communion. I want to read from Galatians chapter 3. You don't have to go there. Maybe don't go there. Just close your eyes and listen to this, this text from Galatians. And I'll pray and we'll, we'll take communion. If you haven't been to the branch before, uh, communion, uh, there's two tables in the back. You take the bread, you dip it in the cup. And uh, we trust that it's, it's believers, it's baptized believers who go and do that. If you haven't been a baptized believer, there's going to be some leaders over here, over by the coffee, in case you need to pick me up. Um, we'll be over there to pray with you, to talk what that, about what that looks like. Um, but as we move into this time of communion, I want these words, the words of Paul in Galatians, to really rest and close us this morning. Listen to this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this time, the freedom for us to be able to come in and, and to worship you. And I pray in the time that remains that we will do just that. And I'm thankful for the mothers in the room. I pray for those who uh, have difficulty on this day, that you would just give them strength and courage and comfort where they need strength, courage, or comfort. And I thank you for this church, how you're rallying brothers and sisters for the gospel in this community and to the ends of the earth. I pray that you would help us to go. I pray that our feet would be as dirty as the feet of Moses' sister, as Pharaoh's daughter, as Moses' mom, that our feet would be as dirty as the prodigal who comes back and is welcomed back into your family. 
So I pray now as we enter into a time of communion that you would help us to remember the true and better Moses, Jesus, the Son of God, who came to deliver your people, to bring us back to right relationship with you. God, we're grateful, thankful that in your grace and in your sovereignty and your mercy, that you saved Moses' life, that you raised him up to be a victor over Egypt so that ultimately the good news of God saving sinners would be victor over the world. So we love you, we thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.